You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. An image of a folksy, defiant president appearing at whistle stops all across the country from the back of his train car, meeting farmers, the average people, the common man, telling them he'd like his job back, please. And telling them about the do-nothing Congress that he has to work with. The Republicans, those terrible Republicans, they were allied with the bloodsuckers on Wall Street. Yeah, those bloodsuckers on Wall Street do seem to show up in every American election. Republican platform favors equality of educational opportunity in the promotion of education. I've been trying to get Congress to do something about that ever since they came there. And that bill is at rest in the House of Representatives. Until the crowd agrees with him and surges and one member says, Give him hell, Harry. It's a great political story. president comes back after his train campaign, and he won the election. There's nothing about the story that's fiction. But the story of the 1948 election is a much more complex story than just the narrative that's often told. You start with, I hate to do this, the whole give him hell Harry thing. Well, it's an aide who jumps off the campaign train, goes into the crowd, and then at a certain point in the speech, he shouts, give him hell Harry. And yes, as the campaign progressed, eventually there would be legitimate members of the crowd who were actually doing it spontaneously on their own once they heard that this was the thing to shout. And you have to say that while the train campaign was exciting, it's simply impossible that farmers carried Harry Truman to election. By 1948, the country was 56% urban, and the Democratic campaign had many components that were appealing to those groups as well. And that bloodsucker comment, the Wall Street comment, it wasn't off the cuff, but it was as planned as any focus group tested comment today from a candidate might be, and it was part of a strategy document that might have made Karl Rover David Axelrod proud. And then you end with, there may not have been a Harry Truman comeback at all. I know, I hate to be the one to do that. Well, since we can never really know The textbook story of 1948 that you always heard, the president comes back after his train campaign, 
is not so far off, all right? It's a good foundation. Truman was behind in the polls, and notably in the opinion of newspapers and radio political experts at the time, and he did confound those expectations. You can say that. He was indeed a folksy guy who spoke plainly. I mean, he said that Congress would put a pitchfork in the farmer's back. At his acceptance speech, he said he would beat the Republicans and make them like it. His whistle-stop tour was absolutely real. All 23,000 miles of that campaign was real. He rode around in his train, Magellan. You can go on YouTube, and there's a color film of one of these Truman campaign stops. They don't have the sound, but it was in uh, Rockford, Illinois, and it's a great thing to see. So that really happened. And yes, the last Gallup poll in 1948 had Truman losing by five points to his opponent, Thomas Dewey of New York, and he won the election. And it's not so much that that story of the election is wrong. It's not a simple case of Underdog Beats Winner. And I'll add five notes to what you already know about 1948. First, the Truman started the race with advantages. Never was an underdog so advantaged. Secondly, he employed a modern campaign and a strategy that would compare favorably to candidates today. Third, his opponent was not as dominant at all as is portrayed by the standard narrative. Fourth, there was a third-party candidate. There was actually four candidates, a Dixiecrat party, a progressive party, then the Republicans and the Democrats. And so this idea of a two-man race in which Truman upsets the odd is more complex. And fifth, and something that could apply to today's election, Truman was never quite popular and he may have benefited from a rare presidential election trend that I'll talk about having to do with the votes of his party senators that has implications for today. So that's five extra things you should probably know about the 1948 election. Oh, man, I know. This is terrible. Why ruin this election? This election that keeps so many campaigns hoping, hoping, even when they're down in the polls, when the chips are down. Well, I know. I know. I think the truth, the more complex truth, is always better to know. And besides, uh, it can remain an encouraging story because, as I said, Truman still did confound the expectations of the time to the extent that they were visible at that time by the means that politics could have been measured. And we'll get into all of that. And also, if you want to come back story, just go a little bit farther in history to the 1916 election that doesn't get talked about that much because there's no moving pictures. That's a great tale, minus the train. Truman was part of the leading party at the time, the Democratic Party, which had taken power in 1932 with Franklin Roosevelt. Much larger registration, had the legacy and the support of the New Deal, was the party that had led the nation during the successful World War II effort. Truman is the inheritor of the very popular Roosevelt name, and he certainly uses it in his campaign speeches. And labor never had but one friend in politics, and that was the Democratic Party and Franklin D. Roosevelt. The economy's not bad, especially because a lot of people thought there would be a recession right after World War II, the way that it happened after World War I. That was still very much in the memories of people, and when it didn't happen, even a modest economy seemed pretty good. 
when you consider that there was another leading progressive candidate in the race, it turns out most of the American people were going to vote for a Democrat of some type, the Truman Democrat, the Dixie Democrat, or the Progressive Democrat. We also mentioned that Truman was the benefactor of a modern-type political campaign strategy. Well, in 1947, aware of all of these advantages, his aide, Clark Clifford, outlines a detailed strategy to target what he calls pressure groups. Today, we might call them special interests. These are labor unions, Catholic voters, liberals, Jewish voters, black voters, and then, yes, farmers. Truman takes specific actions in 1948 for each of these groups. The quick history, at least, only records the train trip for the farmers. In fact, the farmers, Clifford describes, the ones who are going to be the main beneficiary of his train campaign, are the group that are almost already in the Truman camp at this time. They're fairly happy. The president coming from Missouri is like them, talks like them. They're happy with the Marshall Plan because this is going to boost grain prices as grain's being supplied to Europe. They're pretty much in the camp. Truman takes specific actions for all of these other groups. He really does want to make a play in New York. He's not going to end up winning it. His recognition of the state of Israel minutes after they declared their own independence, something that helped with that vote. All right, it's also going to be part of the rivalry with the Soviet Union, the one to do it before the Soviet Union did. He makes a speech at the NAACP. He's the first president to do it. He advocates for an anti-lynching bill, anti-poll tax legislation. He vetoes the anti-labor Taft-Hartley. Though he's overridden by Congress, he's a labor hero. And for Catholics, he makes sure to take on communism as something that's anti-religion. But Clark Clifford's strategy memo is followed intact. One of the things he's going to tell him is, You need to appeal to the liberals. How do you do it? Keep attacking Wall Street. Another point that's really missed in a lot of the history is that Dewey is presented as this kind of formidable candidate, as if he's like the, the early Ronald Reagan or something. And this is not true. You have given here in this hall a moving and dramatic proof of how Americans who honestly differ close ranks and move forward for the nation's well-being shoulder to shoulder. Thomas Dewey's made fun of as the bridegroom on the wedding cake. (laughs) He makes statements that are just not very forceful. Someone calls them all too noble. I am profoundly sensible of the responsibility that goes with this nomination. And, you know, when you compare it to the way Truman talks. I must have your help. You must get in and push and win this election. The country can't afford another Republican Congress. (laughs) If elections come down to who wants it more, I think it's pretty clear. He's a compromise candidate. The reason he's chosen is because the Republicans at this time are fighting amongst themselves, isolationists, interventionists, and what level of involvement in the world you want, many, many other issues. Conservatives versus moderates at the time are fighting. And he's a candidate who has said so little that he becomes the best nominee. But he had run four years before. Dewey's the candidate in the 1944 election, and he's beaten by Roosevelt. And even though he's up in that last poll, something's going on with the Dewey campaign that they well notice that he can never seem to get 
beyond a certain point in the polls. He never seems to get to that majority in most polls. It's kind of like anchoring at 45 percent. And the campaign's very concerned about this throughout the election. Republicans see that stagnation before pollsters or political experts did. Then we go to the third party challenge. The strongest and most dangerous third party challenge for Truman was coming from Henry Wallace. He's the former vice president. He's a liberal. He's a genuine supporter of the New Deal. FDR fought to have Henry Wallace on the ticket in 1940. He said, I won't run again if you don't put Henry Wallace on. He could not get that done in 1944, and thus he had to settle for Truman. But Wallace is FDR's guy. He has a lot of support among progressives, among the New Deal brain trust. And he's for peace. That's his position. He's not pro-Stalin per se. He wants to promote understanding between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. He wants an end to the Cold War. After this election's over, in his concession talk to Truman, he's going to say, please end the Cold War. Something that's not going to happen for 75 years. But that's what Wallace wants at this time in 1948. You do have to go back in time. We had just fought a war together with the Soviets. So even though there was this creeping fear of Stalin and communism. And at this point, Churchill had made his Iron Curtain speech. It's not irrational to think that you could work with the Soviet Union because we've just been in a successful war effort with them. Wallace's run is well known to history buffs. And I know that a lot of people listening who know about politics history know everything about Henry Wallace, been several books written about him and all of that. But it's missing from that standard narrative, you'll notice, about the upset of 1948. We don't talk about Henry Wallace that much, and, and we probably should. Wallace's in the race, you know, made Truman look weaker, and he had to take on Wallace as well as Dewey. And he does so forcefully. It's an interesting thing, because there are some frighteningly close parallels between uh, the Truman and Wallace squabble and what's going on with some of the Putin talk today, except in this case, it's Joe Stalin that they're talking about. You know, at one point during a speech, Wallace defends the Soviets. Now, you have to understand one of the things that's happened is going to be very good for Truman in a way, very bad for Wallace, is that the Soviet Union takes over Czechoslovakia. This looks bad for Wallace now because his whole point that we just need peace, 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 it looks like no, Churchill's right, you got to stand up to these guys. Truman's right, we got to have a little bit more forceful policy against the Soviets than maybe even FDR would have wanted. Circumstances had changed, that kind of thing. Wallace argues that because of Truman's policies being so anti-Russian, anti-Russian, he says, you know, essentially, what did you expect Moscow to do? Literal quote, they would be morons if they didn't take some corresponding pro-Russian action. So he's defending Stalin. He's literally defending their invasion of Czechoslovakia, even though he's trying to blame it on Truman. Truman attacks him harshly, calls him an appeaser. And so much of the election is Truman taking away support back from the New Deal coalition, back from Wallace. You know, polls have him to 10 percent. He's going to end up getting 4 percent in the final poll when the pollster stopped in October. And he's going to get 2.4 percent on Election Day. So it's Truman taking from Wallace just as much as him catching up with Dewey. Now, reference, there may not have been a Harry Truman comeback in, at all, but we really don't know because it was so cloudy. For the last time that pollsters in America will ever do this in a presidential election, they stopped doing them a month before the election. 
this is really the first generation uh, doing this process. They have done polls as a kind of extra newspaper goodie the readers really like. They did it for the 1936 elections, 1940, and 1944. And the polls were right in those elections. They weren't right in the exact percentages, but they were right about the outcome. The last poll that Gallup does shows 50% Dewey, 45% Truman. This leads to the standard narrative, of course, that Truman won because it was almost exactly reversed in the actual contest. And it looks like that Truman came back because of the tour and other things in October. The actual result is Truman 50, Dewey 45, the exact reverse of the poll. But as we'll discuss later, all pollsters agree at this time that they made too many mistakes to count their polls. Polling was not like modern polling at all. One factor of many we could just talk about. They used telephones. That's great now, telephones. Wonderful. But in 1948, a Republican was three times as likely to own what was an expensive piece of equipment for a lot of people. The pollsters were calling people by telephone. Who are you going to vote for? The narrative that we keep telling about the Truman comeback gives these polls a credibility that they did not have even by the people who conducted them after the election was over. It's just as possible that Truman had that 50% all along as it is that he came back in the month of October. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, there's another factor. Truman might have been the beneficiary of a rare trend. We all hear about coattails, presidential coattails, picking the congressional and senatorial candidates up when you're a really good presidential candidate. Reagan in 80 and 84, LBJ in 1964, Obama in 2008, all had this effect. But a few times, not that often, particularly with Senate candidates, it's easier to observe, the reverse might have happened. The down ticket is forced <laughs> to prop up the presidential candidate in some states. Truman gets 50% of the popular vote in this election. Democratic Senate candidates across the country get 56%. But it even becomes clearer when you look at some individual states. You know, Illinois, there's a popular Senate candidate running there, Paul Douglas, who gets 55% of the Senate vote. Truman gets just 49% in Illinois. Very narrow win. 
So was it really Truman's campaign train and his folksy campaign that earned him Illinois? And, you know, he did go there. One of the video that's up on YouTube, which is a great little video, is of his stop in Rockford, Illinois. But Paul Douglas got 5% more. What's going on there? Train campaign? Or many Chicagoans and people inclined to vote Democrat anyway decided, okay, I'll vote for Truman. In Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey, former mayor of Minneapolis, civil rights advocate, gets 60% of the vote there running as the Senate candidate. Truman gets three points less. In Ohio, there's no Senate election, but Truman narrowly carries that state by two-tenths of a percent over Dewey. But the gubernatorial candidate, Lausch, in the Democratic side, gets 200,000 more votes than Truman does. Iowa, you see this too. Very popular senator, Guy Gallette, Democrat, is getting 58% of the vote. Truman, just 50. 8% of those people in Iowa decided to vote Democrat for Senate and not to vote Democrat for the presidential election. So was it the train going through Iowa? or the party apparatus, and a lot of other factors. It happens. It's rare, but it happens. In some cases, you have this down-ticket push-up that happens. Jimmy Carter, he's outpolled 3% in 1976 by Democratic candidates that year running for Senate. 1992, Clinton's outpolled by the Democratic Senate candidates. Obama's slightly outpolled by Democratic Senate candidates in 2012. 2004, Bush is beating his Senate candidates that are Republican nationally, right? But in Ohio, a state he needs for that election or he doesn't get the White House again, George Voinovich is getting 8% more than George W. Bush does in 2000, the state that only mattered in that election, which is something we're going to talk about in a bit. We're going to talk about Ohio in a bit. 2004, that's all that matters. He's being pulled up by the down ticket. Why does it matter? It's a little important in this election because it matters for both candidates. You have high unfavorable ratings. We've never seen this high before since the stats been measured. Now, it's only been measured since 72, but let's look at that. You have uh, on both sides, really, but more, I think, on the GOP side. You have in Trump a candidate that many senators, senatorial candidates have decided they are not going to support. But yet they're certainly supporting their own campaigns. And you have funding sources, of course, the Koch brothers being only the most prominent, but many others who have decided to fund down-ticket races but are staying away from Trump. You have to consider this 1948 trend. If you bring voters out to vote, you do not have remote control over them. They may vote anyway, and if you're bringing people who are inclined Republican out to vote because of your down-ticket campaign, many of them, not all, will vote for the presidential candidate. Now, if there's a bit of blue energy in these Senate races, while there's a dampening in the Clinton presidential vote because of some of the, the recent disclosures about the emails or the WikiLeaks or, 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 or angering some progressives or things like that, it's possible you could see the trend on that side too, where they may not come out for the presidential race. They come out because there's a senatorial candidate they want to vote for, and they vote for the presidential ticket. I still see it more on the GOP side in this election as something to watch out for. 
We talked about how cloudy the 1948 election, that maybe there wasn't a comeback as much as no one could see what was going on in the race at all. So they called it a comeback. David Kenny asked me on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics fan page, fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics polls, when they're right, when they're wrong, and have they changed over time? Thanks, David. Well, obviously, they were wrong in 1948. And I tend to believe, I tend to lean towards the fact that they just failed to measure. They had all this up and down movement. They really weren't measuring anything other than a few people they sampled and what they thought. Look at this stat. Thomas Dewey got 22 million in 1944. Wendell Wilkie, the GOP candidate before him, got 22 million in 1940. That's the popular vote of the GOP. Dewey in 1948 gets 22 million again. So you see that there was kind of that GOP vote that was there, and that's all he got. I don't think they measured anything right. This profession, which is a loose collection at 1948 of pollsters, professors, academic researchers, they really start to look at themselves. And an issue of Scientific American, written by one of the key pollsters who got it wrong, says, you have to keep polling. You wouldn't give up a science just because a few people practiced it badly. Let's get better and let's keep at it. And this is kind of the feeling in the profession. Newspaper people love polls. There's a publisher of the Minneapolis Star Tribune who says the readers like it, plus it helps us. See, our editorials, and this was true of a lot of newspaper editorials in the 20th century, were Republican. But our people in Minneapolis were overwhelmingly Democrat. We endorsed the Republican Senate candidate. But everybody loved Hubert Humphrey. The fact that we had polls allowed us to at least address that. It gave us another forum to address the election. We could at least acknowledge that we know that our readers like Hubert Humphrey, even though we're endorsing the Republican John Paul. So newspaper people generally liked it. They don't want to give up on it, but everybody wanted it to get better. They actually run their polls that they did in 1948 through a committee of academics led by a math professor at Harvard. They look at the Gallup Survey Research Committee, the Roper, all of the pollsters at that time. They look at the data, they get the source material, and they do a 400-page report on it. They say some things that are obvious. You can't stop polling a month before the election. That's one problem. You selected way too many high-income voters, all of you. You didn't address turnout. You didn't have any way of telling whether these people were actually going to come out. You just asked who they'd rather have for the election. You didn't have any section for undecideds. You just assumed that if people were undecided, they'd fall in the same percentage between Truman and Dewey that you had of the people who answered the question. That's bad science, all of it. They follow this up with a conference at the University of Iowa and Gallup and other key pollsters meet with social scientists and they talk about their sampling methods. They talk about ways of trying to address turnout. So a lot of the improvement in modern polls goes back to the 1949 conference in the University of Iowa. So to your question, do they work? Well, I'll tell you this about it. If you look at Gallup, 1948 never happened again, all right? They were 5% off in 1948. They've never been 5% off in the last poll before the election. And sometimes, 1968, 1972, 1960, 1984, Gallup was dead on with the result at the polls. Of course, they had what might be a bigger failure in calling the wrong winner, even if it was only by a point. They did it with Ford. 
And Gallup actually called Romney in 2012 in their last. So there's trouble, but they got better than 1948 with some of these new methods. If you're consistently seeing a difference of 3% or more in these polls, your candidate might be in trouble. And if your candidate's only ahead by one point, as they had Romney and Ford, take it with a grain of salt. That's at least Gallup. I don't have time or resources to look through all of these polling agencies over history. Nate Silver did look at all of the polling agencies in 2012 and their closeness. He actually looked not just at the last poll, but one month before the election, and he had different ratings. Gallup was actually the worst because they had Romney up by even more in October 2012. They were off by 7.2 points. Rasmussen off by 4.2. Public Policy, 2.8. Quinnipiac, 2.3. CNN, 2. Survey, USA, 2. Washington Post, ABC, 2.8. All of those eras favored Romney by... You can look at it two ways from 1948. In one way, they cut the bias from 1948 and a half over this time. But keep this in mind, too, though. 1948 was a 5% bias... Dewey 50, Truman 45, when the numbers should have been reversed. That was the great era that gets so much shame in history. It's 68 years later. You've really only cut this down by half. I think there's just a lot of uncertainty with polls and the problems with polls that were addressed in that University of Iowa conference with sampling and the like are still present today. Although telephones are more common, you do see a problem with cell phones versus landlines and other things that have to be adjusted on a regular basis. And the pollsters are good about doing these adjustments. But every time there's an adjustment, there might be an opening for an error. They're doing a lot better at adjusting for possible turnout, assuming that certain groups will turn out better. But I also think that opens up potential errors in the future because if you start adjusting for turnout, then turnout doesn't happen. Are they applying, for instance, turnout stats from 2008 and 2012, that may not work. You shouldn't throw them away. They're very valuable. I think they're great to look at. We need to know what's going on. Politicians need to know when they say something, do something, advocate something, if the people like that or if it's terrible. There's some important things you get out of polling, but I don't think it's taken with the grain of salt often that it's needed. The way that it's reported, when a poll comes out, it makes news, and there's no reason that it should. Before the modern poll, it wasn't like politicians had nothing to tell them what was going on, but they would do a variety of things. They would read newspapers from all over the country, which could be some idea of opinion. There would be little straw polls at various local areas. Some politicians would survey train travelers to try to get an opinion, send emissaries to ask whatever was the, the big opinion leader in town, maybe a newspaper publisher uh, or a big businessman, to, well, what people were generally thinking. Because even though you didn't have the scientific methods then, you probably had more social connections. So it was maybe a trade-off, and it was, you kind of knew where, where people were going. I, I do, it is obvious from candidate behavior that they had an idea of what was going to happen in the election, so it must have come out of something. Maybe they're looking at the size of rallies, that kind of, there's all these factors. In 1860, for instance, Stephen Douglas knew he was going to lose, all right? Four-way split in the election. You have two Democratic tickets, John Breckinridge, Stephen Douglas, Northern and Southern Democrats. 
You have Abraham Lincoln, the Republican Party. Then you have a constitutionally union third party running with John Bell of Tennessee at its head. Stephen Douglas knows he's going to lose. He diverts his campaign to the north and goes south and then runs for the remainder of the campaign, makes speeches in the south, trying to get them not to secede, to stay in the union. He uses his time for that. It's noble. It's not an often remembered thing about Stephen Douglas. So he did this without any Gallup poll telling him, oh, you're only at 23%. So obviously they had ways of knowing back then. Abraham Lincoln was probably more aware that he was going to win in the election. There was a little bit more of a challenge with the John Bell Constitutional Union Party. And that's a little story of the 1860 election. It doesn't get a lot of talk, probably a future podcast. But I think generally Lincoln knew he was going to the White House. South Carolina seceded after the result, followed by other states. And so when Abraham Lincoln is inaugurated, it's a crisis. But who is there when he's making a speech behind him? Stephen Douglas, his former rival from Illinois, his rival now in the presidential election. And there's a story, and we don't know if it's true, and whenever that happens, I sense that it's not true, but they're often too good to pass on. And there's a story that uh, Lincoln didn't have anywhere to put his hat And Carl Schurz, German-American supporter for Lincoln, tells the story that Stephen Douglas turned to Lincoln and said, I will hold your hat. And so you have this moment where these two great rivals for the presidency are there together, Lincoln, uh, and then Douglas is dutifully holding the new president's hat while he makes his speech. We don't know if it's true, but here's what we do know is true. Stephen Douglas is up on that stage with him. So... Whether the hat story is true or not, the basic truth is the same. The former president, James Buchanan, is up on that stage. The former vice president and another rival for the presidency, John Breckinridge, is up on that stage. He's going to escort the new vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, a person with opposite ideas than he, as he takes the oath of vice president, Breckinridge is going to be, in a few years, a Confederate general. But at this moment, he's up there with Lincoln and Hamlin. Horace Greeley, one of the newspaper editors at the time, is up there. This is a big event. Carol Lockhart asks, when Lincoln was elected, was his legitimacy questioned? Were there protests at the inauguration? Did secession raise questions about the election just completed. This is a good question, too, because you have two candidates with large unfavorability ratings, and on the other side of each of them is a group of people who are active who are not going to be happy with the result. You know, you do want to look at, at 1860 and everything that happened, but it works and it doesn't work. Lincoln's election obviously provoked South Carolina to secede. So they didn't feel his election was legitimate, and maybe many people south did not feel his election was legit. The legitimacy of the election for them and many pro-secession Southerners was questioned because Lincoln didn't win any states in the region. He was a regional candidate, and they felt that if a regional candidate, a candidate really only from the north is entering the presidency, 
there's something wrong with the system. It is, quote, rigged, right? The other side of this, by the way, and Lincoln responds to this effect, to these arguments over the campaign, is that if you're calling us a regional party, then that means the moment I get votes or the Republican Party gets votes in your region, you have to stop that argument. Lincoln was a very logical guy, right? (laughs) You have to stop using that argument because the Republican Party is going to get votes in your region. And indeed, even in 1860, he gets votes in Virginia, he gets votes in Missouri. There are votes cast for Lincoln in at least the the border areas of the South and Virginia. He's not allowed on the ballot in many Southern states, so of course he's not going to win. There are some places where if you had any kind of rally or showed support for Lincoln, they would call out the militia. So it's not exactly a fair uh, attack, and this is one of the points they make. There is a little bit of a fear, though. General Winfield Scott is in charge of uh, the security he has police and cavalry surround the carriage that has begun in Lincoln, coming down from the Willard Hotel, which was the tradition, to the Capitol to get sworn in. There are sharpshooters on the roofs of various buildings just to make sure that no one comes at the carriage. So I guess that would make a protest difficult. A couple of accounts here. Julia Taft, 16, is observing the scene, and she says she suffered a pang of sorrow at the sight of that lovable gentleman of the old school, James Buchanan, who was at that time my model of a president. She also records that she hears comments in the crowd about Lincoln being an Illinois ape, a terrible abolitionist, etc. But these are comments in the crowd. All of the trappings of the normal inaugural parade and Buchanan, the former president, even though he doesn't agree with Lincoln on policy, is escorting Lincoln. Here's what Julia's father, Horatio Nelson Taft, who is a clerk at the patent office, and his diary, which is a great diary, Civil War era Washington. Here's what he says about this day. March 4th, 1861. This has been an eventful day in Washington. A. Lincoln has been inaugurated, President of the United States. His address seems to give general satisfaction. I stood near him and heard it distinctly. The crowd was very great at the Capitol, probably 30,000. And all were orderly, and nothing has occurred during the day to interrupt the proceedings. Lincoln is fairly in the harness and can now go to work. Well, you know, you might be surprised by this because I'm kind of the history politics guy. Gosh, I've been following politics for a long time. I was watching C-SPAN before it was even called C-SPAN. It was the Congressional Channel. (laughs) And... uh, Election night's a big day. It's like a Super Bowl for me and a follow election returns. Obviously, you know, politics is everything. But I have to admit, this election is so visceral in a way. I just think both sides have decided that uh, it's turnout. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at that man up in the tree. People reading very different media sources and interpreting information. You know, I didn't see that on my Facebook feed, that kind of thing. My Twitter's not saying that, you know, that kind of thing. Very visceral election. So even I have tired from it a bit. And the World Series, you know, was a nice little break this year. I think that's, I think you're going to find a lot of Americans saying that. In fact, at one point, I just started to crave other things but politics. I began to read a book on squirrels. Actually, it was fascinating. Um, 
you know, you see them all, all around, and uh, I just thought I would find out a bit. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I did, you know, I did learn some things. And squirrels are very busy. This is the fall, and if you live in a region that has them. And uh, so I was learning a lot and taking a little break. And, you know, though, I come to find out when I, I get to a, a later chapter that, you know, squirrels have politics too. So, you know, we're, they're not free of that. Uh, there's, they have certain territories which they mark. They mark it uh, rubbing their cheek onto a branch. There is pecking order among individuals. The use of the stomping foot is a way that they intimidate other individuals. So, back to human politics it is. Alan Josephson writes on the Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on Facebook, Senator Harry Reid is claiming that FBI Director Comey may have violated the 1939 Hatch Act. Without starting a debate about the election, is there any historical basis for Reid's claim and what's the history of the Hatch Act, etc.? Okay. Thanks, Alan. And I'm not the best person for current legal opinions, but I will weigh in. I'll just, you know, do the best answer. And then I'll give you a bit about Carl Hatch and his his old bill, because there is a little story there. But essentially, I think uh, Harry Reid's statement is a, an election year type statement. Defensive play to what is a very bad development for the Clinton campaign last weekend and slowed momentum. These type of surprises tend to modulate as you get close to an election, and people have already made their minds. You're going to have people going who feel one way about policy and people going to vote who feel another way about policy, and I don't think that the presence of emails are going to shake that. So it's either you believe that uh, Hillary's great and persecuted one or that uh, this is a huge and alarming negligence with national security and you just can't vote for the person but i don't think it shifts opinions it was bad though in terms of slowing momentum and that could have an impact on all kinds of things turn out polls that kind of thing hatch act i think if you're asking my opinion on it i don't think unless you somehow got the fbi director if he turned around and said well i did this to help the republicans you know uh otherwise i don't see any kind of hatch act investigation even occurring the Hatch Act applies to federal workers. You can't politic while doing your federal job is the basic essence of Hatch. For instance, HUD Secretary Castro was actually in the HUD studio talking to Katie Couric about 
housing and urban development. And in the middle of the interview, she said, who are you backing for the presidential election? He says Hillary Clinton. He got flagged with a violation because he was working. He was answering questions about HUD. It wasn't purely a political event, and it was in the workspace, etc. He had made a disclaimer. I'm going to take my HUD hat off now, but that wasn't good enough, uh, apparently. Hatchack goes to the tail end of the New Deal. Conservative Democrats and Republicans, a conservative coalition, particularly in the Senate, was trying to limit the reach of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Carl Hatch is a New Mexico senator, and he felt that a political machine in his state was developing with the other senator, Dennis Chavez, and that they were manipulating WPA funds to help their politics. You know, vote for us and we'll make sure to get this project done. We'll make sure to get you jobs in your region. There's evidence that a lot of this type of activity happened in several states. And I think any time that there is additional monies being given to local areas, that's something you have to put the lens on. And uh, as much as even I, I'm not necessarily opposed to, depending on the situation, if there's a recession or something, some kind of spending. I also know from my study of history, that's something that you do have to put a lens on because it's obvious that it's going to occur. Instead of, you know, we need this road built because this is in disrepair and it's a good thing to do for the, for the citizens when you have a situation where we need to build this road because Senator X wants it. That's something you have to look at in any democracy. And there was increasing criticism building throughout the 30s that this was going on. Hatch Act is a response to that. There's a lot of opposition historically to Hatch Act and there's opposition now. I mean, a lot of federal workers feel that this is a violation of their First Amendment rights. Nobody else is limited from talking politics. And anytime you're not talking in politics, the other side of free speech is that if you can't talk, someone else is free to speak. And only that message goes out. So there was a lot of opposition, a lot of concern among new dealers about Hatch. And they felt strongly that it was going to be used to merely criticize people in federal positions. Franklin Roosevelt uh, wanted to make sure it didn't apply to the president. He didn't believe it applied to cabinet officers or shouldn't apply to cabinet officers. But Carl Hatch is successful in putting it through. Essentially what it is is he shames the rest of the Senate and the House into passing it, not holding it up in committee like they would do with a bill like this they didn't like. And because of the nature of it, it's, it's so seemingly in the public good, it was hard for the senators to object. They hoped that Franklin Roosevelt would veto it. He also, by the time you get to 39, is not in as strong a political position as he used to be. He does not want, he doesn't really want it. He has a conversation with Hatch. Hatch assures him this doesn't ban people from donating money. This doesn't ban people from being a member of a party. This bans people for making speeches when they have this federal position. You're, Mr. President, you've been against bossism and against political machines, and this is true. See, you might think, particularly if you're not inclined to, to agree with the New Deal program, that Franklin Roosevelt was loving the fact that people were using the WPA to build democratic politics in the state. And in some cases, there were people friendly to him doing some of that. But it also... Uh, just because WPA money was sent from the federal government, it still had to go to states, and the people administering that money and, and controlling the politics in the state were very often bosses who were not necessarily in Roosevelt's corner. 
So there were elements of it he didn't like either. He did agree to sign Hatch, and the actual bill is Hatch Dempsey. But in his signing statement, he warned that judges should not make this a gag order. So it was something that he reluctantly signed, and I do wonder if you had the kind of signing statements that presidents use today, where it's actually codified in the law and available to judges, whether we'd have a much looser interpretation of Hatch. Describing a cartoon can be tough. Cartoons were the kind of Facebook memes of older times. They were a visual way to jar and grab people about something that was going on in politics that otherwise might be hard to explain. And so in 1896, there was a cartoon of a a dog, a rather long dog, uh, with a map of the United States on his body, broken out into the states with their electoral votes. And the Northeast was colored darker to signify this was the dog's tail, while the West and South made up most of the body of the dog in gray. And then a few Midwestern states were not colored to indicate that they were the swing states. The cartoon said, Will the tail wag the dog, or will the dog wag the tail? It's a Bryanite argument. It obviously is. Uh, Will we be led by the Northeast, the bankers, the gold men? The election in this cartoon is a bone fiercely gripped in the dog's mouth. So I think about that when Dan Lee asks, shifting demographics and tipping point states. During the past two elections, Ohio and Florida were the keys to the presidency. This year, it seems, it is North Carolina and, to a lesser extent, New Hampshire, and Colorado. Virginia appears to be solidly blue. Is the change the result of people moving or younger voters who are more left-leaning coming of age? That's what Dan Lee asks. Okay, yeah, and I do think it's interesting. I mean, Ohio earned its place as the birthplace of presidents. More presidents born there than any. It's an important state in all of history. Settled by Connecticut, in the Northeast from the very beginning, settled by the state of Virginia in the Southwest from the very beginning, Ohio still reflects a diversity of opinion, and it's present in our politics. But you're right to suggest that it may have lost that, that influence that it had in 2004. It was practically two people running for president of Ohio. And since then, it's been very important, but not as critical. Democrats have done better in Virginia, and Colorado is a kind of blue dying of these states, and that would not be imaginable during the 1990s. What happened? Well, let's just focus on Colorado. Voted for Ford, voted for Reagan, voted for Bush, voted for Dole, George W. Bush. Well, since then, the population changed, and it changed in a few areas. Colorado is the second fastest growing state. Denver's the fastest city. You have 200,000 new people in Denver that didn't exist for Bill Clinton's election in 1992. Not available. And if you look at the total Denver area, including all the burbs, you got like half a million not available to Bill Clinton in 92, available now. There's Boulder, there's Littleton, Aurora, it's booming. 
so fast that you hear complaints there about lack of housing, too many people, crowded schools, too much construction, expensive restaurants that the old-time locals can't afford, mountain views being blocked, poor zoning decisions, all of that coming from those growth problems. Of course that's going to change the politics in a state. Boulder County gave Obama a 49% margin, and over 50,000 votes. Arapahoe County gives him another 20,000. Adams, 30,000. This plus 130,000 in Denver, margin, Obama. And for the GOP, they're simply running out of people in Colorado to combat that. Now, Romney had a few population centers where he got votes too. El Paso County, where Colorado Springs is, gave him a 60K margin. Douglas, an exurb of Denver, got 40,000 margin. But after that, you run out of counties that have significant amount of people voting GOP. Growth is flattened Kit Carson, flattened Cheyenne, flattened Teller, flattened Park County, flattened Lincoln County, flattened Washington County. There's nowhere else left to catch up to that Denver area city vote. Even in Colorado Springs, there's been growth. With the population growth in Colorado Springs, the percentage Democratic vote is also increasing there. Now, Democrats are still losing Colorado Springs, but they only got 27% in 1992 when Bill Clinton's running to a loss, but a more competitive loss of 39% in 2012 when Barack Obama is running. That's the county of El Paso County that contains Colorado Springs. So you can see the change there. Now, is that growth coming from new people moving in or from young people reaching age? And as you say, they, they may be more liberal. I think it's mostly the former. It's new growth. I mean, the numbers on households with children in uh, Arapahoe County, I looked that up, for instance, it's close to the U.S. in general. It's actually a tad lower than the U.S. in general. And your first voter spike in Colorado happens in 2004 when they get 47%. That's 1% shy that Kerry gets, 1% shy of what Bush gets. And this is a state that voted for Bob Dole in 96, so... I don't think the kids are old enough in 2004 to reflect uh, having grown up in Colorado. I mean, some of them certainly, but it seems like new move-ins. And that's what cities report, realtors report. This is a very similar situation in Virginia this year. Uh, Movement to northern Virginia in those counties has so far exceeded the rural counties that they can't catch up. When you add to it that you have on the VP ticket... The senator from the state who's been reelected. I mean, I think that's something that the Democrats are counting on. There's no reason to take it from them. Now, word of caution. Just as I think the blind spot of that stereotypical GOP, or not everyone, but the stereotypical one, is that they fail to go beyond their own identity. You know, it's like, hey, I don't know anybody who votes uh, Democrat, you know, that kind of thing. The blind spot of Democrats, I think, is might be overuse of demographics to where it becomes demographics as destiny. It's a little true, and it's very useful. But the trends can be shattered. You can change minds. You can bust up some notions. I mean, if you're just calculating on demographics and ignoring that, you know... Uh, uh, we, you know, th- there could have been some major foreign policy disaster. I mean, a large one. I mean, and if that happens, are you really going to count the votes in Aurora and say, you know, the Democrats win? So I think that 
Opinions can be shattered despite these preferences, but of course they're important to note. It's a big hodgepodge podcast before the election. I want to thank you for listening. Since I'm recording this about the election, please remember to vote. People have asked me for an election prediction. You know, I have one election prediction. I'll say this. Four words. Two celebrities. Big turnout. Our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Here's what I have. The premium podcast. So many people are like, you know, I really want to hear more, and I want to help support the program. Well, you can do it. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. And you go there. It can be as little as $2 a month. You'll get the premium cast with extra episodes, with repeat episodes from the past. That's my only prediction I'll make right now. Um, So we covered a couple topics. 1948, Lincoln's inaugural the changing swing states, polls, and the history of polls. And I hope we applied some good history to your understanding of politics. Got a great write-up in the Columbia Journalism Review, one of the nine best podcasts to listen to, to understand the election. So I hope we're tackling these four big topics, kind of complex topics that people aren't exactly always talking about. I hope we made that description come true. And I know that we have some new listeners coming in from that. So welcome. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.